How many of y'all can admit that you are finished with your Christmas shopping? All right. How many of y'all have not even started your Christmas shopping? All right, a few of okay, there, brother, I'm with you, okay? We're, we're, we're kindred spirits. Uh, no, I, when you got a great wife like Lori, she just does it all, and I just have a few uh, to, to, to take care of. But this is a, a, a crazy time of year. Hopefully you're not in this kind of a, a mode, and hopefully you will not experience that, that mode. But listen, when you're thinking about Christmas, I hope, uh, even if you, it comes down to Christmas Eve, that you're kind of getting those last gifts and you're out there, that you'll kind of carve off an hour with us on Christmas Eve night. It totally will help set the mood or or maybe detox us from the other mood that we're in. on Christmas Eve afternoon at 3.30 and at 5 o'clock, we'll be gathering here. And bring your children, bring your preschoolers, except for birth, the, the three-year-olds, we'll have a place for them over next door or in the, in the next rooms uh, just adjacent to us here. But otherwise, we're going to have a great time together reflecting, looking into coming out of darkness into light. What does that look like? What does that mean for us this time of year? And so beautiful time together, Christmas Eve night. But here, this, you will probably not hear this from very many pastors. Do not come to Grace Point next week, okay? All right, listen to me, all right? Don't come here next week. We won't be here. You'll be the only ones here, all right? I hope that you're hearing what I'm saying in in light of this canister here. This is our worship uh, capsule, our family worship gathering in a, in a can, not really. It's in a time capsule, all right? This is something that we're trying this year. We've never done it before. We're going to try it this year. Where we're hopefully equipping you as a family next Sunday, whether you have family come in from out of town or whether you're traveling or you're on vacation, that you will get together with family, with friends, with your communitas groups, wherever, with whomever, and you will worship together, all right? We're equipping you as a family uh, to do this. Now, I know it's a bit awkward uh, for a church on a perfectly good Sunday to say, hey, we're not meeting and we're not anti-worship. Obviously, we do it 51 weeks out of the year. But this Sunday, we're saying, hey, take it home. Take it to your children. Be with your families and worship there wherever you are. And Believe it or not, some of the kids are kind of catching on to this. So Cooper uh, Franklin uh, did this little video this past week with his own family. I want you to see kind of his uh, his rant, if you will, on why you need to be doing uh, uh, family worship a- as a family. So watch this little video clip. Let me talk about home churches. You do not, you do not pick a new home church. It's just like picking a new family. Would you like to leave your old family behind? No. It's just like leaving God behind your back. All right. So don't leave God behind and don't go pick a new family. It's the moral of that that little rant. I love it. But anyway, grab one of these on your way out today, one per family, and everything's aside. Save it. Don't open it until next Sunday, and then let that be a, a special time together. And we want you to keep this, keep it available, and as you go through life, you go on a vacation together, load it up, 
take it with you, create memories, God moments. Lori and I will actually, and yeah, when you do, be sure and tweet whatever photos you have of your family doing whatever to that hashtag. But here, here's something, Lori and I will actually be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro uh, next week at this time or beginning ready to, to do that. We'll have a team also going to, to West Africa uh, and they'll be doing this in the Paris airport. So wherever you are in the world, please do this and observe this time of worship as a, as a family together. Take your Bibles, be finding the most unlikely passage for a Christmas message, all right? Go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 to be specific. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 3 in a, in a moment, but I want to kind of lay some foundation here. I know that your kids are counting down the days. Five days to Christmas, all right? That's all we got. I mean, I know the anticipation in your home is building. Kids are counting it down. They're asking, can I open just one gift early? And how many of y'all ever get that question at your house? All right, it doesn't, does it work at your house? Because uh, it doesn't work at our house, all right? And so uh, anyway, uh, wh- whatever it may be, there's 120 hours, if you didn't know that, uh, till Christmas uh, morning. And that means there are 7,200 minutes until Christmas morning. So if you look at that in, 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 its, in, in just anticipation, think about 7,200 minutes. It seems like forever from now. But let me tell you the very first prophecy in the Scriptures that was foretelling about a coming Jesus, a coming Messiah. It was Four to to up to 10,000 years. Now, again, trying to nail down exactly the date of the book of Genesis and and nail down the the genealogy and and nail down when Adam and Eve, that's a little bit difficult in in the best of circumstances. But when you look at it, we we can know that somewhere between four to five to maybe 10,000 years ago. All right, so let's just go with a good round number of 10,000 years ago. So 10,000 years ago, Adam and Eve, we're in this perfect place in the perfect land in a perfect garden and everything was perfect. And God established with Adam what's called the Adamic covenant. And a covenant with Adam. That, hey, listen, I'm going to put you into this place. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. And everything in here, you get to manage. You get to manage. You get to have, except for one tree. That tree, that's off limits. That's not, that's not for you. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that one. It was a covenant relationship. Now, a covenant's different than a contract. A contract enters into a contract when you're skeptical about something. It enters in looking out for your own best interest. A covenant is built on love and not, and not distrust, but trust. It's built on the idea that, hey, I believe in you and I want to give this to you. Let's read the Edemic Covenant and you can follow along in Genesis chapter 2. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is this covenant relationship. Now, I know this is Sunday School 101. This is the the first class that you get. This is right after the creation, and we kind of get all that. But let's kind of get it in a context. If we're going to be in Genesis 3 in a moment, we got to first understand Genesis 2. 
Because what falls apart in Genesis 3 is humongous and it will forever change everything. In fact, if you want to take this book and sum it up in three words, this is the book that I'm holding in my hand, the Bible. You've got generation, you've got degeneration, and then you've got regeneration. That's everything from God creating the world in a perfect place, in a perfect uh, uh, garden, and he puts Adam and Eve in this perfect place, in this perfect garden. But then they make this horrible decision, tempted by Satan. That's, you see, degeneration. And from that point, he doesn't wait 2,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years later. But from that point forward, we will see in just a moment, God already starts putting into place a process and a plan to regenerate, to redeem, to reconcile man back to God. He doesn't wait till Jesus is born, little meek and mild, laying in a manger. But actually, in Genesis chapter 3, we see in there what is called the proto-evangelum. That was not created by me, Arrhenius and Justin. They were the first ones to come up with this. But whenever you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you find the very first prophetic message that there is going to come a Messiah, a somebody. You don't put the word Messiah in there. Somebody who is going to redeem mankind. Now, it is in this context that you find God speaking a curse over Satan. All right, we're going back. I know we're going basic 101 here, but God is speaking over Satan because what happens in this degeneration is God holds man accountable. God holds Satan accountable. God holds woman accountable. And each one of them, he gives a perfect, he gives a direct, he gives a specific condemnation or a correction, if you will, or a judgment because of the sins that they lived. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have a conversation, if you will, a monologue, more like it, between God and our adversary, Satan. And so understand this in, the book, in, in light of that. And let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. Hopefully you, you found it by now. And let's look at uh, verse 15. This is the only verse, the primary verse that we're going to look at today. But when you come to the Christmas story, we got to realize that this is, again, I'm going to go round number, 10,000 years in the making. They're waiting for this verse to become a reality. Here it is. The Lord is speaking to the serpent. We know that from verse 14, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Boy, that's a real poetic. Where do you get Jesus in that? Well, I promise you there is a very clear message, and I pray that you will never read the book of Genesis again, but that you will see hidden in this, in this verse a very clear reference to the coming Messiah. It's going to be a difficult, it's going to be a painful, it's going to be a grueling process to get there. But what we see in here, and we're talking about what matters most around Grace Point. We've been doing this for about a month and a half. And let me say this, what matters most, what matters most is Jesus. If we don't get Jesus at the center of our life, then we will miss it all. Okay, what matters most, if we don't get Jesus, Genesis chapter 3, I'm saying this is a pointing to thousands and thousands of years before Jesus ever came. This is a pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to come. 
And I think you'll see that very clearly. The problem is, is that we don't have Jesus in our holiday much more, much these, much these days. When you come to Christmas, I was watching the BBC this past week. And as you might know, there's the first British uh, astronaut to go into outer space. And Tim Peaks, in outer space, he said this in an interview, what, what was going to do at Christmas time. He says, Christmas is about family, friends, and thinking about the future. Now, I'm sorry, I know I'm a preacher, and I know I'm a Christian, and I know I'm a follower of Christ, and I know maybe looking at this kind of, a, a kind of a, a subjectively, but I have problems with that statement. Yes, it's about family. Yes, it's about uh, friends. Yes, it can be about thinking about the future. But in nowhere in that statement was there any recognition of any faith whatsoever that it had anything to do with Christ. And I think that that right there is indicative of many people. Listen, we read this book and we don't see Jesus until we get to Jesus. But listen, Jesus is from the beginning to the end. And he has been working. And you'll see by the end of this message, he has been working from the beginning to the very end of time. He is at work. Let's look at three reasons why I believe Jesus Christ matters most. Number one is that life is full of pain. Life is full of pain, but Jesus is full of hope. Now, you might wonder, as I wonder, if God is God, and God is all-powerful, and God can do anything, why in the world does he allow pain to be in the world? Why in the world does he allow suffering to be in this world? I get it. I, I, I don't. I, I ask the same question. I wonder why, whenever there's a loss, whenever, whenever I hear of somebody, even just this past week, somebody younger than me that I went to high school with, dying of cancer. How is that? When I hear of somebody losing a job, when I hear of somebody in, in, in brokenness and pain and, and chronic suffering, when I hear of that, when I hear of the injustices around the world, I go, when is this going to stop? When is this going to end? Isn't there a God that can stop all of this? The reality is, is that God didn't create a world to be painful, to be unjust. He created a pain-free society. He created a world that where there was, it was perfection. But what we did, what Adam and Eve did, is they traded that in. They traded perfection in for pain. They traded a joyful marriage and became unequal partners. They, the happy cultivation uh, became a sweaty toil in chapter 3, verse 17. A beautiful garden became a briar patch. They traded it in. They traded in the, 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 the imperishable for perishable living. They traded it in. And you read through the book of Genesis, you're going to find murder, rape, idolatry, disease, drunkenness, drought, deception, and death. You'll find all of that. And none of that was a part of God's plan. When you go back to verse, chapter 3, verse 15, notice the very first words. He says, I will put enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to put a war. That's the war term here. I'm going to put fighting and turmoil and pain and suffering. I'm going to put a war between the spirit world and mankind. I'm going to put pain there. And you find even as you go on and you read, as God deals justly with the people, he says, I'm going to put pain with a woman, 
in her childbirth. And I'm going to put pain in the men as they go out and toil and work and provide food for their family. I'm going to put pain in the eating. Pain comes in because sin came in. Pain is the result of sin. Enmity is the result of sin. It will remain so until the very end of time. When you look at life, it's like bookends. You have life with when pain entered into the world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then you have at the very end, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And in the middle, you have life. I want you to read chapter 21, verse 4 with me. Read it out loud. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. I want you to notice that pain enters in because sin entered in. Pain is the result of sin. It's not God choosing, wanting, designing in his perfect plan that it would be there. This past week, our nation commemorated or remembered, reflected on the horrible tragedy in Newtown whenever a gunman, 20 years of age, goes into a school and kills 26 people. We have no, we have no schema for that in our minds. How does a 20-year-old do that? You know, we have the hate crimes that happen around the world. and we, How does that happen? Well, in Newtown, whenever this happened, to on, the, on December 25th, the New York Times three years ago put an article in the op-ed written by a priest talking about why God. Why did God allow this to happen? Why, why is pain and suffering out there? And you can read through the op-ed and you can read the various views and karma of the Hindus and you can read the Buddhists and their views and you can read the Catholics and their views and you can read the, the Protestant and their views and you can read the Stoics and their views and you can just read American culture unfolding right there about why pain exists. And the reality is, is we don't know what to do with pain. How do we survive it? How do we make it in this world? Here's a life principle for you. God is not the cause of pain. Sin caused pain. He's the cure to pain. I'm not saying if you believe Jesus, all your pain will go away. In fact, I'm going to tell you this, that your pain will be there. In fact, maybe your pain at times will even increase. If you're a follower of Christ in certain parts of this world, it may even mean the end of your life. John records Jesus saying it like this. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. The reality is that we will have tribulation in this world, but we can have peace in tribulation. We can overcome in Christ. We're going to start a new series of messages on January the 10th, just called The End of the Rope. Because some of us are maybe at the end of our ropes where the pain, the loss, the suffering, the questions, the, the unanswered questions of life and pain that we might be going through, and we're at the end of our rope. Listen, that's a common feeling in Scriptures. Job felt it like this. He said, pain is gnawing me, takes no rest. Paul recorded it like this out of the message. He says, when someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel the desperation 
in my bones. And what I want to say to you is not a prescription, not a pill. Hey, if you take Jesus in, you'll not have pain. I'm not saying that at all. You'll be cancer-free. I'm not saying that at all. You'll never lose your job. You'll never be betrayed. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that you will have a source. You will have an internal existence of God inside of you that because of Christ, you will have what it takes to make it through the pain. I can't promise you a life without pain, but I can promise you hope through pain in Christ. Why? Is Jesus so absolutely important? Because there's enmity between us and the spirit world. Because there's pain in life. Because pain marks life and we need hope in this life. Number two, Satan is our adversary and Jesus is our savior. We got an adversary, somebody who's out to get us. This enmity, he's very specific. It's this enmity with a woman and her offspring. It's an interesting phrase her offspring. Now, you've got to understand a little bit of the Bible to understand that throughout the Bible, you find people referring to the next generation. In fact, 50-something times it refers to the seed of man in the book of Genesis. So the whole idea of somebody's offspring is not a new concept. But this is, mark this down, the only time the Scripture refers to the woman's offspring alone. Most of the time, it refers to the offspring of the man. Most of the time, it gives the recognition as the patriarchal relationship. But this time, it's referring to the woman's offspring. What is the big deal about that? Now, a little sex ed here, and I'm going to keep it G-rated. You know it takes the seed of a man and the seed of a woman to make a human being. But it's specifically, you're speaking to the seed of a woman. Why, why, why? That's a part of the prophecy. Because there's going to be a child that's going to be born. Mysterically, miraculously unknown. How can this happen? Because it takes two to make one. How does this happen? It biologically can't happen unless God chooses for it to happen. God allows for it to happen. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, 500 years before Jesus ever came, Therefore, the Lord himself will give a sign and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 10,000 years before Jesus came to this earth, you find here again, Jesus being, saying that he was going to be born of a virgin. And then in Galatians chapter four, verse, verses four to verse five, it says, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a woman. This, my friend, I just want to point out is not just me reaching back into the Old Testament and saying, let me find a verse that talks about a baby being born. This is something that on the day that God is, the day that God is handing out his judgment, his, his, some people have called it his curse on Satan, his curse on humanity, his curse at the same time, listen to this, he's also handing out his grace. He's handing out his, his love. Hey, I'm going to provide a way. I'm going to provide a way that will blow your mind, that cannot be explained in a laboratory or anywhere else. And one rabbi said it like this, the birth of the Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord as it drops on the grass without the action of a man. A Jesuit missionary 
Matteo Ricci went to China as a missionary in the 1500s. And when he went, he took with him his artistic skills and he began to paint and, and, and to depict this coming Jesus. And he told the story in some kind of chronological Bible storing method. And he told the story of Jesus coming and the baby being born, born of a virgin, walking through his life in ministry, all the way to the point of his death on a cross. And the Chinese were, were, were said to have accepted Jesus as a, as a baby. They accepting Jesus born of a virgin. But they couldn't fathom the fact that 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 God would send his son to die. They had a hard time accepting Jesus dying. They didn't have a hard time accepting Jesus being born. And I think there's a reality today that we got to understand that unless he died, his birth was in vain. We needed him to come just as he did. Innocent, pure, without the seed of man, living, loving, giving, serving, teaching all throughout his life and ultimately dying and coming back to life again so that there could be life for us. So that the adversary Satan would not have the final victory over us that we would have a Savior in Christ. The third reason I think we need to understand that Jesus is really what matters is because Satan, yes, he may have gotten the first bite, but Jesus will have the last strike. When you look at this passage, you see in verse 15, you know from verse 14 that he is speaking to the serpent, but in verse 15 he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And the last phrase, he says this, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his his heel. Uses the same Hebrew word. Some have translated it that you will bruise his, his, uh, his heel, but uh, he will crush your head. So however you want to see it there, you'll see the ultimate victory is not in a simple biting of the heel. Now think about it for example, for, for a moment. I don't want to, I don't want to ever, in fact, I'll say it like this. The only good snake is a dead snake in my, in my, in my life. People have said before that if you get close enough, you can look into the eye of a snake and the way the eye, live, the eye is shaped, you can tell. I don't get that close to snakes. All right. Um, when we were getting ready to move to Africa, um, we had heard just literally right before going of a missionary in Mozambique who was walking through the bush and stepped over a log and a green mamba bit him. And... Uh, and, and then I can, I remember his name is John Dinan. I can remember hearing John Dinan tell me the story about how he's out in the bush. He's the only one who can drive his vehicle and, or knows how to drive a vehicle. And he has to get back to his home to get airlifted to South Africa if he ever even hoped to live. Well, God did amazing things because what he should have died in that village, he actually is living and still a missionary today in Mozambique. So when you talk to John Dinah about striking the heel, when you talk about a snake bite, this guy knows what a deadly venomous snake bite will feel like and can do to somebody. And Jesus, our Lord, received that snake bite, bit his heel. Whenever he died on the cross, it was Satan injecting his venom into him, our sins into him, his death into him. And Jesus died. 
for three days, dead, buried in a grave. But he came back to life. He came back to life and there's life in him. He came back to life and he crushes Satan's head. And that's this verse being lived out. He, he shall bruise your head. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. This was prophesied before Jesus came. He was bruised for our iniquities. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You go all the way to the book of Revelation. And you find in the book of Revelation again, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Now notice this. And that ancient serpent who is the devil, and he bound him. I want you to see from Genesis to Revelation, this snake, this serpent, this diabolical, deadly adversary called the devil is out to get us. And pain is because of that. Loss is because of that. Injustice is because of that. We, we will constantly in our lives be living with that. But we have the hope in Christ. We have the answer in Christ. So when we come to Christmas, it's not just little Jesus, meek and mild, that he appeared on the scene. No. This is the long-awaited, as we sang earlier, the long-awaited Messiah. The long-awaited one. Do you know Jesus today in that level, at that level of intensity? He is the eternal God He turned the lights on this galaxy, my friends, and the galaxies beyond. He breathed upon the face of the deep. He flung the stars into space. He created man in his own image and breathed into him his nostrils, into his lungs, the breath of life. He opened the fountains of the deep. He bestowed grace upon Noah. He provided a lamb for Abraham. He rescued Joseph from the pit the prison, and he put him in a palace. He saved Moses in a basket. He delivered Egypt from the hands of the, Israel from the hands of the Egyptians in their bondage. He spoke the moral law of God on Mount Sinai. He blew down the wall of Jericho. He gave Caleb that mountain. He, he empowered Samson to beat and slay the heathen. He made Boaz the kinsman redeemer. He gave Baron Hannah the son named Samuel that she longed for all of her life. He enabled David to kill giants. He humiliated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He gave Elisha a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He gave Job twice as much as he had before. And Esther, he put her in the king's palace and he put Haman's on the king's gallows. In Nehemiah, he said, go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And to Solomon, he gave wisdom. And to Isaiah, from the angelic-filled temple, the message we shared just a few weeks ago, he called Isaiah out to be his missionary. 
He put fire in the bones of Jeremiah and he told Ezekiel to go preach to the valley of dry bones. He was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he helped Hosea redeem his wife. He promised Joel that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And through Amos, he reminded him that he made the stars. From Jonah, he delivered him from the belly of the big fish. And Micah, Micah, the one day that we would beat our hooks, our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. He reminded Nahum that he is the slow to anger and he is great in power. He announced to Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith and to Zephaniah that you should seek the Lord and that you seek his righteousness and that you should seek meekness. He uttered through Haggai, consider your ways. He promised through through Zechariah that one day he would whistle and all the people of his would return to him. He declared in Malachi that I am the Lord and I cannot change. Do you know him? Because in Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the Lord over disaster, demons, disease, and death. In Luke, he's the angel called Jesus, the son of the most high. In John, he's the light of the world. In Acts, he's the rushing mighty wind. In Romans, he, uh, he declares uh, to be the son of God with all power. In 1 Corinthians, he's the one who gives us power over death. In 2 Corinthians, he's the one in which all the promises of God abides. In Galatians, he's the one who gave himself for our sins. In Ephesians, he's the one who saves us according to his great mercies and adopts us into his family. In Philippians, he is the one who starts the good work in us and will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he's the head of the body. He is the head of the church. In 1 Thessalonians, he's the one who will come back and will call people to himself like a thief in the night. Second Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians, he is revealed in heaven with his mighty angels. In 1 Timothy, he is the blessed and the only sovereign king King of kings and Lord of lords. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he is the blessed hope. In Philemon, we, we know that every good thing that is in us can, comes from him. In Hebrews, he holds all things together by the word of his mouth. In James chapter 1, verse 5, he is the giver of wisdom. In 1 Peter, he's the living hope. In 2 Peter, he He's the divine power. In in John's letters, he's the love of God. In Jude, he's the majesty, dominion before all time, now and forevermore. In in chapter 1, verse 25. In Revelation, he is the Alpha and he is the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Do you know him? Do you know him? For 10,000 years, they waited for him. And he's come. And we are waiting for him to come again. And we celebrate his first coming this time of year. But it's just a celebration if you do not know him. Do you know him as your Messiah? Do you know him as your Lord? Would you pray with me? Father, we can't explain pain other than pain is a result of sin. 
But we thank you that, God, you came and you took pain so that we could walk through pain, so that we could have freedom from pain. Lord, we, we have an adversary who's out in warlike terms to get us. Thank you, Jesus, that you took the, the blows. You took the sting. You took the pain of death so that we can look into life. Lord, I pray that we know you this season. Not just for this season, but for all of our life. That we would know you, Lord, as the Messiah, as the God who made us and put life in us. Lord, would you help us right now in this time, in this moment, to reflect for a few moments more and just worship you and just sing to you and just acknowledge you as the Messiah, the King, and the Lord, and who you are. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.